Good morning. Good to see you. Uh, we're going to jump into the message, but we want to make sure that we take some time, kind of pause uh, for a moment. I'm sure that you've heard news, um, or maybe this is the first time that you're hearing about this, but there's conflict going on, significant uh, conflict going on in Israel right now. And I don't know what your exposure was to that information. I know mine came via text message uh, early in the morning of, hey, did you see this? This and this happened. And you, you maybe are like in fact-finding mode trying to figure that out. I know that's part of the process is figuring out what source is the best source and what's going on, trying to get a vantage point of everything. And so we just wanted to take a pause in a moment um, and just ask the Lord to intervene. God asked us to pray. God is ultimately in control of it all. He's the all-powerful creator of the universe, and he doesn't just create, spin it off, and leave, right? He's a father who's intimately involved in our lives, and he calls on us to call to him. And so we have the ear of the omnipotent one. Why would we not use that, right? And so I'm going to pray right now, and then we'll jump right into uh, our normal programming. Uh, but we're going to jump in. And so if you want to... Uh, Pray in the silence of your own heart or pray out loud, however you want to do that. I'm going to pray. You can join me in, in praying. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that we call you Father. Uh, we don't just call you creator. You're not just our author. But you are intimately involved in our lives. And you know us. And Father, you know what's going on right now. And we know that when your creation is in pain, your heart is grieving. You're not just a force out there, but you are a person who's connected to us, relates with us, and grieves with us. And we also know that you are a God of action and a God of power. So, Father, we pray that you would intervene, that you would come in and come through. We know that you're already involved, and we pray, Father, help us to know how to be involved. Give wisdom to those who are um, seeking to protect, seeking to act justly. Father, we pray that you'd be with them. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would, you would change the hearts of men. Uh, it, it is a fickle thing to try to think we can change people's hearts. That, 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 that organ, oh man, it is a fickle thing. And it is hard to change and persuade and all those things. But we know, Holy Spirit, that you can do that. You've done it in our lives. You've changed my heart. So Father, I pray that you would intercede, you would intervene. And we're going to give you all the glory and the praise, knowing that your plan is going to be, is going to unfold. So we thank you that we can call to you. We pray that you give us peace, knowing that you hear our prayers. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So I'm going to take a hard turn here. We're going to jump into uh, a topic uh, as we're talking about money. We've been working through this series on money, taking different topics and running them through the writings of Luke. So the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And as we talk about money, we've talked about how to view our money, how to handle our money. We've talked about where our money should go, what we should support. We've been talking the last couple weeks about supporting local gospel ministry, giving to the church, giving to a church, how that's important. And now we're going to talk about something slightly different, but another thing that we give money to. So let me just start by asking you, do you have fun paying your taxes? Oh, it's the best, right? It's like Christmas. Yay! Tax day, right? I mean, it just feels like who doesn't want to give their money away to the government? 
Yes, like, well, uh, maybe, I don't know, right? It's, I mean, now, we know, right? It's not the fun day. It's not the day we look forward to. It's not like we're like, oh, we can't, like, there's no advent calendar for tax day, right? You're like, open it up. You're like, oh, debt, yay. It was like nasty spoiled chocolate or something like that. Right? You don't have, you're usually not looking, like, in, te- in anticipation for the advent of your taxes being due. But we know that governing bodies uh, collect or take, whatever your verbiage is, uh, taxes from its citizens to provide services, right? So our taxes pay for health care, they pay for law enforcement, they pay for education, they pay for a lot of things. Governments use their authority to tax their people to provide for, to provide for them, normally. That's how it works. Now, for us as followers of Jesus Christ, this sometimes kind of puts us in an odd space. Because our primary obligation is to God. Right? Our primary obligation is to him. He is the authority in our life. We have pledged our ultimate allegiance to him. Now, but in our lives, there are other groups and entity, entities. There's, there's governing authorities who command allegiance, who want us to follow them. And, and, and how do we handle that kind of tension? As followers of Christ, how do we pay taxes, say, to a, a government that doesn't support our values? Right? That's kind of a hard dilemma to, to deal with. And, and the scriptures paint a very complicated picture of governing authorities. The scriptures tell us very directly that we need to pray for our governing authorities, that we need to submit to our governing authorities. And the scriptures also talk about and warn us about the evils of abusive authority. In fact, the end of the story, when you look at the very end of scripture and it describes the end of history, it speaks of this conflict of the authorities of men and the followers of Jesus and how there's going to be this conflict that happens. So how do we handle this kind of dual obligation to civil obedience and faithfulness to Christ? It's a hard tension to deal with. Should Christians pay their taxes? Should they be model citizens? Now, when we're trying to answer that question, we've got to be very careful of a word, a conjunction. And that is the conjunction or. There are some very dangerous words in the English vocabulary. Or, and, always, and never. You've got to be very careful with those words. They can get you in trouble. If you're married, you know always and never. That one always gets you in trouble. And it's never a good idea for you to use those. See what I did there? Okay. But the and and or, that we got to be careful of those. See, or is a really good tool. It's really helpful because or can simplify a problem. It's like a razor. It kind of just cuts and it says, here, you have option A or option B. Very helpful. It's this or it's this. Now, it could also be a very dangerous tool. Because it can oversimplify. And in oversimplifying, it actually eliminates possibilities. If you only think it's A or B, then you don't consider C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, U, V, W, X, Y, and Z. That's hard for a dyslexic person to do. Okay, you should applaud me for that. You're welcome. I practiced that for two hours in the mirror. No, no I'm just kidding. But you see like the possibilities that we 
We could not be viewing because we have this or mentality. Here's what I think often happens when we're thinking about civil obedience and faithfulness to Christ is that we put it in an or kind of way. And it's not that. It's not obey God or obey government. It's not that simple. In fact, a lot of the times we can do both. And the scriptures portray a different picture. They actually speak of when we obey government, we're obeying God. See, a better word for us to use when trying to decipher civil obedience and faithfulness to Christ is not or, it's a different word, under. Under. In fact, you're going to write down anything. I want you to write this down. This is the big idea for this morning. How we handle this kind of tension is this way. It's not either or, it's under. It's not either or, it's under. And here's what I mean by that. When we open up the scriptures, we see that God is at the top and he has placed government under him, but he also has placed it over us. So government is under him and we are under the government. In fact, when we look up and we see government's commands, we should see his hand behind their commands. That's how sovereign and in control he is. Now, there are times, times, specific situations when the government calls us to go outside from under the authority of God, that's when we can't follow. There is a time for civil disobedience. When our compliance to the government is defiance to God, we don't do it. But that's only in specific, and we cannot confuse those categories. Because in general, the rule is this, our God is in control, and he has put government under him, and he has put us under government. Let me show you this in Acts chapter, or sorry, in Luke chapter 20. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus is confronted with a question, a question really about civil obedience. Should we obey? Specifically, should we pay a tax? And it's going to be presented to Jesus like an either-or question. And the way Jesus responds shows that his perspective is not either-or. His perspective is something different. I think his perspective is under God, government, and then me. Right? Let me show you this. Luke chapter 20 Verse 19, Luke chapter 20, verse 19 says this, the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So it's important for us, before we get to the question of should we pay taxes, it's important for us to see the context of this conversation. And what's happening is the scribes and the Pharisees, they're mad at Jesus because Jesus has told a story. That's a parable. A parable is a story with a point. And Jesus' point in this parable was picked up by the religious leaders. Just to summarize the story, the story was this. The parable was this. It was the parable of uh, a landowner. He owned a vineyard and he leased it out or rented it out to some tenants. And they were supposed to work the land and then give him some of the proceeds, some of the revenue of of, of the land. And what happened is as he leased this out, he went away and then he sends these servants to go out and check on things. And what these tenants do, Jesus classifies them as wicked tenants, they beat up the servants. They commit violent crimes against them. 
And then the landowner, now I don't understand this, but this is Jesus telling a story. He's not actually depicting something that actually happened. The landowner says, I know, they beat up my servants, they'll respect my son. That terrible father strategy, right? I'm just sending these random people, they're beating them up. I know, I'll send my child out. Now Jesus is making a point here. So the landowner sends his son and these wicked tenants kill the son. And then Jesus says, what do you think the landowner is going to do? Oh, he's going to execute justice on these guys. The Pharisees and the religious leaders realize, "Uh uh-oh, we're the bad guys in this story. We're the wicked tenants. Jesus is saying that we have hurt the prophets, those who God has sent to us. Jesus has put their blood on us and our ancestors, that we rejected God's way. And now Jesus, claiming to be the son of God, is now coming to them. And how does the story end for Jesus? Well, it doesn't end. But how does the chapter end, in a sense? They crucify him, right? They kill him. So the religious leaders are like, we don't like this story because we're the bad guy in the story. Now, instead of taking that understanding and then changing, they just persist in their rebellion. They're like, we don't like this guy. We're coming after you, Jesus. But they try to set this up subtly. We got to get this Jesus guy out of the way. So let's get him in a trap. Let's trap him with a question. Let's trap him with a yes or no question. Let's get him in a dilemma, a lose-lose dilemma. Right? Let me show you what they do, how they kind of scheme this up. Let's get him in trouble with Rome, and then Rome will do our dirty work. And we won't have to worry about this Jesus. Look at verse 20. So they watched him, and they sent spies who pretended to be sincere. So whoever they're sending is probably not a known affiliate of the religious leaders. They're creeping into the crowd, and they don't know that, that they've been sent. Look, the crowd doesn't know. Jesus doesn't know. So I don't know if they, where they got these people from, but they weren't people as known associates. They were spies. They were sneaky, trying to present themselves as sincere followers or at least sincere people who were curious about Jesus. And so they come up and so, so that they might catch him in something he said, as to deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. They're hoping, let's get Jesus canceled, right? That's what they're setting up, kind of in our modern vernacular. Let, let's get a question out there. And then once Jesus answers, we'll trap him, right? You've seen this before. We've seen this in media. Your kids do this to you. Right, let's be honest, those manipulative blessings that they are sometimes, right? They set up these questions, you're like, hold on a second here. Right? I tell my kids often, like, I, I don't expect a simple answer to a complex question. I know you're trapping me, right? I know you're just trying to get ice cream out of me. You know, I know, I know what's happening here, right? This is what they're doing. They're going to trap Jesus. And then what we'll do is we'll get him to say something against Rome, and then he'll get canceled and we wouldn't have to worry about this guy anymore. All right, look at the dilemma they set up. And it's a dilemma about civil obedience. It's a dilemma of should I be devoted to God or should I be devoted to Caesar? They set it up as an either or. Look at the question that they come up with. Verse 21. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and you show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Like, I can't read that without being sarcastic. Like, clearly, like, just as you hear this, you're like, liars. 
That's not true. It's not what you really want. They're flattering Jesus. Now, look what they're doing to him. Like, they're, they're kind of buttering him up here. Jesus, you're so, you know, pure in your teaching. When it says they show no partiality, that phrase means, Jesus, you're not favoring one side or the other. You just want to be faithful to God. You don't care who you upset. You don't care to, to make waves. Jesus, you're always going to teach what's pure. Do you see what they're doing? They're trying to use Jesus' devotion to God to create this false dilemma of, of a lose-lose situation. Now, clearly, they don't realize that Jesus is omniscient. He knows everything, right? They're trying to stump the Son of God. Like, clearly, this is not going to work out for them. But they try anyways. And so they say, hey, you're so devoted. What do you do with this, Jesus? And here's what they ask. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar, here's that word, or not? They've created this dilemma. Is it this or is it this? Now, I love how Luke records this account. The other gospel writers use a more generic term when it comes to tribute. But what actually is being communicated here by Luke, and Luke picks this up, is this is not a normal tax. This is what, we, what was called in the first century world the poll tax. And what this was, it was a tax on a certain type of people. So if you were a Roman citizen, you were exempt from this tax. This was the tax that was on the foreigners. Those who had been subjected under the authority of Rome. They've been a conquered people. And they would pay this tax once a year directly to Caesar as tribute to him. This wasn't a like heavy financial burden. It was one denarius, which would be like the equivalent of a day's labor for the average worker. So just a day's wage. Now, that may seem like a lot, but that's not that significant. That's not the hardship of this. The hardship of this is what it symbolized to the people, what it symbolized to the Jews. It reminded them that they were under Rome and they were not their own nation. And they had to pay it in a denarius. They couldn't use different money. They had to pay it in denarius. And a denarius for a Jew was like a, just a blasphemous coin. On that coin, it had Caesar's face. At this time in the first century Palestine, that would be Tiberius Caesar. So it had a face of Tiberius Caesar on it and an inscription that said, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Think about a Jew holding that coin. This is the face of the son of a god. That's hard. Right? And the other sign was actually a depiction of his, of his mother, Livia, who was like an, presented as an incarnation of the goddess of peace. So as they're giving this coin, I mean, this is a blasphemous coin. I'm sure for a Jew to even have it on their person felt dirty. An act of idolatry, the worship of man. And they had to give it and hold that and keep that on them because every year they were reminded, you are under the foot of Rome. Oh, man. You see the dilemma that Jesus is in now? This either-or dilemma, like if Jesus says, pay it, who's going to be mad? Well, Jews are going to be mad. Jesus, you want us to pay this to, to Caesar? To acknowledge his authority over us? 
Like, that's not going to be a popular move. Now, if Jesus tells them, no, no, don't pay that, who's not going to like that? Well, Caesar's not going to like that. Because that's, a, a, he thinks, a proper acknowledgement of his authority over those people. So Jesus is in a lose-lose situation. He is if and only if he views, views it as an either-or situation, but he doesn't. Instead, what Jesus does, instead of making one side mad, he just makes both sides mad. Like, that's a great political strategy. Just make them both mad. They won't know what to do with it. Look at Jesus' response and, and see how, again, Jesus is not going to answer with an either or. He's going to recognize the dual obligation we have to God and government. Look at how Jesus responds to this. Verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness, right? They're not going to pass one by the omniscient creator of the universe. This guy knows everything. He perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius. Do you have one on you? They'd have to have one on their person because they'd have to pay that tax at some time. Hey, show me that coin. Show me the blasphemous coin. Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar. And he said, watch how Jesus makes both sides mad here. He said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Just take that first phrase there. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So what Jesus does here is he uses one verb with two objects. So render is the verb. It's a command. In the Greek, you can actually show that your verbs, your actions are commands. There's a specific way to write the ending of the verb differently. That's what's happening here. This is a command, not a suggestion, not a maybe you should. It was you need to do this. Render, pay back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Who likes that? The Romans. They're over here and this is like, okay, maybe this Jesus guy is pretty good. Keep going. Who doesn't like that? The Jews don't like, they don't like that. No, not a fan of that. I, I need to be reminded of my subjection to this godless authority. Well, Jesus hasn't offended the Romans, so he's just got to continue with this phrase. To God, so render. To God, the things that are God's. Now, who likes that? Well, the Jews like that. Who doesn't like that? The Romans don't like that. Because what are you saying there? Oh, you should give something to Caesar, but not everything. And you don't treat him as a God, and you don't put him over God. You have an obligation outside of Caesar. They wouldn't like that. So what did Jesus do to the yes-no question? He said, both, both. And I think what Jesus is describing to us here is Jesus is saying, there's God here and there's Caesar here. Jesus is not dividing our obligations. He's prioritizing them. You give to Caesar what is Caesar's and you give to God what is God's. Now, to get a clearer picture here, we have to go to the book of Romans. Go to the book of Romans. This kind of picks up this teaching Later, this is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Now, this is remarkable because this is Paul writing later as the church has developed. So this is after Jesus has been crucified, risen from the dead, and ascended. And then Paul is writing to the Roman Christians, and he will be executed by the Romans. 
So is this guy the guy most likely to give a thumbs up to Rome? Like, is, does he have the vote for Tiberius button? No, like support the troops and Tiberius, not a bumper sticker on Paul's chariot, right? Because the founder of the movement died under Roman rule, right? It was the Jews who applied political pressure on the Roman governors to force the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then he writes this, and look at this. This is just an incredible paragraph in the scriptures. Because look at the commands that Paul gives, and look at the view he has of the governing authority, specifically here, the Romans would be for him. Right? Those who would oftentimes persecute Christians. Right? If you wanted to look just at the first century of Christianity, it wasn't constant persecution. It was definitely, I would say, constant tension and sporadic and very serious persecution. Paul is writing about that governing authority. This is what he says, Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Look at the picture given to us. And I want you to think of that idea. It's not either or, it's under. It's under. We'll pick that up as we read. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he, is not, he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes is owned. Revenue to whom revenue is owned. Respect to whom respect is owned. Honor to whom honor is owned. I mean, it's a pretty straightforward passage, right? We see the commands, verse 1, verse 5, verse 7. In 1 and 5, he says, be subject. In verse 7, he says very clearly, pay your taxes. It's very much what Jesus was saying to his, to his disciples and to the crowd that heard. Pay your taxes. Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. But look at the description. I find this fascinating as to what the governing authorities are. Right In verse 4, Twice they're called a servant of God. In verse 6, they're called ministers of God. What is he saying there? Who has put government in place? God has. God makes them his servant, his minister. And what do they do? Look at this in verse 4. This is remarkable. For he is God's servant for your good. I put him in place or them in place for your good, for your flourishing. My benevolence toward you, the good I would have for you, I am bringing about by the governing authorities above you. What is he saying here? Government is a gift. A gift from who? From God. For our good, but also for something else. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger, 
who carries out, this is an odd phrase, God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So think about that. God is up here. The wrongdoer is down here. When God is justly bringing his wrath upon a wrongdoer, what's in the middle? What's the means? What's the tool that God uses? Government. So that means when we push back, when we resist, who are we actually resisting? God. Because God has put government under him and then us under government. Now, there are times for civil disobedience. Absolutely. When the government calls us to come out from under the authority of God, we can't follow. When our compliance to their commands, our defiance to God, we become rebels. That's the moment. We, we draw the line there. That's the kind of the moment that you, well, turn it to an either-or situation. The general way of things is that we need to see God behind government. We need to see his hand behind their commands unless their commands defy his commands. Only when there's conflict are we allowed to step away and say, I can't obey that. Right? It, 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 the reason we have this view is because God is over it all. It's right like God only reigns in church. Like in this building is God's jurisdiction. No, it doesn't work like that. You can't draw a line around God's jurisdiction. He's over it all. Everything. He's not like in the church like, well, I'm glad we got this figured out. I hope the politicians figure it out. Maybe outside they'll get everything right. No, no, that's, like, that's how God works. That's how God operates. He's the one who puts those governing pieces in place. That's how sovereign he is. It's not outside his hands. Nothing is outside the realm of God's sovereignty. Now, this is a message for a different time, but just for a principle so you can understand what I'm talking about here. That doesn't mean that God is always pleased with the events that happen under his rule and his reign. God permits things that do not please him for a purpose. Just because it grieves him doesn't mean it's outside of his plan. Now, we could back up and talk about that at a different time, but this is how we view government. They're not accidentally put into place. They're providentially put into place. And so when we see those governing authorities, we need to see the hand of God behind them. Now, what happens when they ask us or call us right, or force us to disobey a direct command of Jesus? Well, that's when we become rebels. Let me show you this in Acts chapter 5. This happened for the first century church. It wasn't the Romans, it was the religious leaders of the time who didn't like the message of Jesus, kind of similar to those who Jesus told that first story to, the story of the wicked tenants. In Acts chapter 5, Peter finds himself in trouble with authority. And he defies that authority. Look at this, is in Acts chapter 5, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying... We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. We told you, stop talking about Jesus. And here you are, talking about Jesus. Yet here you, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. I like this. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? This was part of their preaching, was you killed Jesus. 
talk about confrontational. Accusing somebody of manslaughter is kind of a big deal. That was part of the apostolic preaching. You killed this guy. You crucified him. Well, no wonder they weren't applauding their messages. We told you to stop. Stop. And what does Peter say? I can't do that. Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We can't obey you. Why? Because Jesus already gave Peter and the apostles a direct command. He told them, preach the gospel, where? To the nations. So if I listen to you, I'm not listening to Jesus, and I got to choose Jesus. So there are specific situations where we must defy the laws of man because they're asking us to come out from under the authority of Jesus. They're asking us to defy a direct command of God. And that, and only that, is the time where we can defy the authorities of men. Now, notice how in Acts chapter 5, that was Peter who made that statement. Peter said, I can't follow. I can't do this. I can't follow. I've got to obey Jesus. But look what Peter writes just, well, maybe a couple years later. Look in 2 Peter. Oh, sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1. That's what I said. 1 Peter chapter 2, <laughs> verse 23. This is why we hand out the notes so you can keep me uh, on track here. Uh, oh, I'm in Revelation. <laughs> Go ahead, talk amongst yourself. This is fine. Uh, I'll be okay. 1 Peter, that's 2 Peter. Here we go. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. So this is the same Peter, the same guy who said, nope, can't follow you. Got to disobey your command. That same guy then writes this. Check how crazy this is. Look what he says in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. What is he saying? In general, in general, you have to see God behind the governing authorities. And their commands see his hand. He has put them there for your good and to bear the sword and bring justice on wrongdoers. That's good. That's for you. And if they ever ask you to come out from under the authority of God, you don't follow. You don't follow. So as a follower of Jesus Christ, it is clear. It is clear what our commands are. It is clear what God expects from us. Right? We're getting, you know, prepping for election cycle and for all these things. And, and we know exactly what we're supposed to do if our candidate or our policy doesn't go through. We know that God wants us to complain. God wants us to whine. God wants us to create banners. God wants us to get mean bumper stickers and t-shirts. And God wants us does he want us to do all this? No, he doesn't want us to do any of those things. What does he want us to do? Pray, support, pay your taxes, obey the governing authorities. That's what he wants us to do. We got to be very, very careful about where that line is. Very careful. Because this is what I don't think we realize sometimes as Christians. If God has put us under government... If we think we're in that either-or situation, there are times where we're there. We're in an Acts 5 type moment. There are times. But when it's not that time and you defy government, you are putting yourself in opposition to God. I don't think we emphasize that enough at times. 
We, we think in like these two separate spheres. That's not how it works. It's not either or. It's not their jurisdiction, God's jurisdiction. No, that's not how it works. It is God's sovereignty, his institution of governing authorities for the benefit of his people. And so his authority is over their authority. And when you move from out of their authority, you're moving against the authority of God. Not paying your taxes. It's not just being a bad citizen. That's being a bad follower of Jesus. Because he commanded you, render to Caesars what is Caesars. Submit to the governing authorities. Now, I get it, man. I get in those moments, like political angst, right, as things are kind of building up and candidates are being cleared and who is this and who is this and what's happening. I get that way, man. I get stressed. I get anxiety. I feel it in my stomach. I feel it in my shoulders as I'm watching the electoral map change and do all this stuff. I get that way. It looks like I'm watching the USC game last night, triple overtime, right? And I was godly. You have to ask the dog. My dog was like, are you okay? Like jumping up my, this big like American lab and wonderful, beautiful dog. She was like, daddy is stressed out. She's like jumping on me, both paws, like trying to calm me down. My emotional support dog. Um, I needed her triple overtime. I needed that dog, right? But I get that way. I get that way when I'm watching even political stuff and I get kind of this angst about myself. I got to release that. Because I know the commands that are before me, and I know who's in control. And God expects me to pray, to submit, to pay taxes. That's what he commands me to do. I know what I need to do. I need to stop worrying. Vote, be active, do those things. Bring about the good of your neighbor. Absolutely. But when it doesn't go your way, stop worrying. Stop freaking out. Stop complaining. Pray and support. Now, if you're curious about Christianity, coming into these kind of new truths, you're hearing some of my vocabulary maybe that I'm using, and you're kind of like cringing at the idea, like like submit. Like, oh, that's a terrible word, right? Submission, that's a terrible word. I can't believe you would say that. Well, if you wanted to stop saying that, you should never read your Bible out loud. Because that word is in this book. A lot. A lot. Now, I get it. I get it. There are authorities that are corrupt. We know that. Scripture teaches us that. That there's brokenness in here. And if you get a bunch of us in this room, in a room, we'll create broken systems. We know that. There there are abusive uses of power. Absolutely. And authority. Absolutely. But this modern notion that I think is, we hear a lot in our culture, is that all authority is oppressive. Okay, if that statement is true, the gospel is false. Because that is not true. Are some authorities oppressive? Absolutely. Do people abuse authority and power? Yes, they do. But is all authority oppressive? No. No, it's not. And a perfect depiction of that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Is the cross a demonstration of God's authority? Yes. The authority of God is screamed to us at the cross. That he took the sins of all of humanity, 
Whether we did the sin with our hand or it was an intention in our heart or a thought in our head. He took all of that sin and he punished it on the Son of God. He punished him on the cross. That's a display of justice, a display of power, a display of authority. Is that oppressive? No. That is benevolent. Because he punished the sins of the world on the willing substitute of his son. His son submitted to die for sins he did not commit. To take on your crimes and my crimes and your guilt and my guilt and your shame and my shame. And he took the entire wrath of God on himself willingly. That is benevolent authority. You flourish under the authority of God. To submit to him is to thrive. And this is Christianity. That is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. It's his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. And when he calls us to come to him, you know what he calls us to do? Come, submit to me. Follow me. Bend your knee to my authority. And that is not oppressive. Oh, that is benevolent. You will thrive under him. So if you're processing all this Christianity thing, you have to know. You have to know. I don't want to sell you a false Jesus here and make you think that, that, that oh, I'm going to become a Christian and get everything I wanted. No. Right? It's not like the kids circling the toy catalog before Christmas. I'm just going to get this all, give it to Santa, and I get everything. That's not, that's not what following Jesus is. But will you be blessed under his rule and reign? Yes. Will you thrive under it? Yes. Will you flourish under it? Yes. But you got to follow it. And that means sometimes you're not going to like it. But it is what's best for you. Submission to the king is what's best for you. And my hope and my prayer is that you would find that. And that you would know that. You would come to that reality. You die to yourself and you submit yourself to him. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you and we, we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray. I pray that you'd help us to see the scope of your sovereignty. Just the, the range <laughs> of your reign. There's nothing outside of your control. Wow. How incredible is that? And we know that you are good to us. And you've put authorities over us for our good. So, Father, we, we pray that you'd help us to see your hand behind those things, to submit to those things, to be model citizens. I pray that, I pray that Sunrise Church will be filled with model citizens. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you give us courage for the true days, the true moments where we're called to cross the line into civil disobedience because we're being asked to defy you. Father, prepare us for those moments. Holy Spirit, be with us in those moments. Give us wisdom to know when those moments are. They will be out there. They will come. Some of them have come. 
And I pray what you'll find at Sunrise Church is faithful people who are willing to say, no, I have to obey God. I can't obey you because you're asking me to obey God. And he is above you and I am under him. Give us the courage to do that. Give us the wisdom to know when that happens. And Father, I pray for those who are just exploring Christianity, maybe just here for the first time, just trying to piece all of this stuff together. So thankful that they're here. Oh, Father, I pray that they would hear. Your call is a benevolent call. Come follow me. Come follow me. And flourish. Oh, I just, I pray, Lord, that they would see it. They would not see your rules and regulations as confiding or constricting their joy, but unleashing their joy. Oh, I pray they'd find your glory satisfying and pleasing and beautiful. Let them not be convinced that any sense of authority is bad. That's not. There's bad authority out there. But yours is not one of them. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.